All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Reality Check. And I am so excited to be saying this. I've always wanted to say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an episode of Jurassic Park. All decks, prepare for hyperdrive. Activate Tractivate. 60% hyperspeed. Are waiting for light speed? No, 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 light speed is too slow. All right, reality check. The signs of fiction. And we do have Jurassic Park on deck today, and we are talking to Dr. Craig Coleman. Uh, Dr. Coleman is an associate professor of plant sciences at Brigham Young University, master's of science in genetics from uh, BYU, and molecular cell biology, PhD from Penn State. He's taught courses in genetics, cell biology, molecular biology, biotechnology at BYU for 27 years. So he really knows what he's talking about. And his research at BYU has been focused on molecular genetics of plants. We are so excited to have you here today, Dr. Coleman. And I usually spend a little bit of time introducing the movie or the concept, Jurassic Park. But this is one where if you haven't heard of Jurassic Park, this is probably the wrong channel for you. So let's just kind of jump right into it and tell me, you know, before we jumped onto this uh recording you mentioned that you saw the movie in theaters when it first came out so tell me some of your initial thoughts then and how your opinion of the book and the movie has evolved now well i really enjoyed watching the movie it was a lot of fun and uh and and the book as well i i watched the movie first and and then i read i read the book and uh i i think it's a great story and uh i was I had a lot of fun in the movie theater. I went with some friends, and uh, as I told you before, we um, I tried very hard not to ruin the movie for everyone by by pointing out all of its uh, you know the the holes in the in the science. But I yeah I'm I'm a fan. Um, I I'm kind of old fashioned, so I liked the first two movies, and then afterwards I I sort of lost interest. <laughs> Which is fair. I think most of us can agree with you there. Yeah. So let's let's jump into some of the science a little bit and and let's kind of take this chronologically because the opening scene is they're extracting the DNA from the mosquito and that was the whole key. That's how he was able to unlock the dinosaurs as they found DNA inside the mosquito. Is that something that geneticists are doing at all? Because I have heard about them uncovering like the woolly mammoth carcass from the glaciers. And they're, they're talking about maybe bringing that back. What does that, what does that look like realistically in the scientific world? Well, no one's done it successfully. So it's been attempted. And, and to, to Michael Crichton's credit, when he wrote the book, about the time he was writing the book, there were some reports of people extracting DNA from insects embedded in amber, um, but nobody could reproduce the results. So this is important in science. If, you're, if a discovery is going to be accepted by the community of scientists, it needs to be reproducible in, in multiple labs, and it, nobody else could do it. And, and so it was, I think, as I recall, it was a B- uh, some sort of a bee that was encased in amber, and they they tried to go in and get DNA. And, um, and there's been other attempts. Um, it, of course, amber is fossilized tree sap or resin. Um, there's another substance that's called copal, and copal 
is sort of a precursor to amber because before it becomes um, petrified. And okay. um, they've tried it from that substance as well, and it hasn't worked. And that's a much, that's a less ancient substance. And they still haven't been able to do it. So Why? Is the DNA broken? Does it have like a half-life? Does it kind of decode over time? Yeah, it degrades. It's it's not, DNA is not a terribly stable, I mean, it, it is. I, I guess I shouldn't say it's, because people have extracted ancient DNA, just not as old as dinosaurs. Nobody's okay. got dinosaur DNA, right? But DNA, as soon as um, an organism dies, the DNA begins to degrade. Um, and in fact, uh, our DNA would degrade if it weren't for cellular processes that are built in um, that repair DNA. So DNA is always being damaged in our in our cells. And there, but there are mechanisms, cellular mechanisms that are designed to repair the damage. So it spontaneously degrades, and then it gets repaired. And my understanding and that, that leads to mutation. Yeah, well, that's ultimately what causes well, mutation, of course, but that's ultimately what causes aging and eventual death from old age and wrinkles. Is the cells, the DNA is no longer replicating successfully, and cancer. And cancer. So, so cancer is is off off will arise from damaged DNA. Mm-hmm. It does not get repaired properly. And that's ultimately from free radicals. Is that correct, or are there also other variables? Well, there are there are a number of uh, environmental factors that can damage DNA. Okay. UV radiation it damages DNA. You know that's right. skin cancer. You know you get damaged damaged DNA. It doesn't get repaired properly, um, and and then over time. You know, if you get accumulation of mutations that occur in certain cells, then they'll they'll turn cancerous. But I think that the point here is that DNA, nobody is the oldest DNA that anybody has ever been able to to get any kind of extraction where it can be manipulated or studied in some way. I, I think the current record right now is two point one million years. Okay, so that's still pretty old. It's it was extracted from permafrost in Greenland, but it's what we call a metagenomic sample. In other words, it's a mixture. So they got it out of the soil, and it's a mixture of DNA fragments from plants and insects, animals, all sorts of things. And so then it becomes very difficult to parse it out, right? Parse out all these little fragments that you get and be able to piece it together into a coherent Genome, you know, a genome yeah. is all of the genetic material of an organism. It'd almost be like somebody dumps 10 different puzzles into a hole and then tells you to solve the puzzle and you have pieces from all the different puzzles, right? Yeah. And and, and with a lot of pieces missing. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Jurassic Park completing the DNA of the dinosaur with frog DNA, to me, that sounds like one of the more far-fetched ideas. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that, you know, that's, I, that, that's a, it's a nice plot mechanism. It's a nice way for him to explain this. I don't, I, you know, I think he chose frog DNA to complete the story of the sex switching because he wanted the dinosaurs to breed, right? Mm. So how can they breed? Well, let's do sex switching. And, and so he, he had him put frog, you know, combined frog DNA. You know, our understanding of genomes now is that they're not, this is not um, like P. 
piecing together an engine or something like that, where you could take old parts from different engines and put it together and get something that's functional. Uh, genomes are, are complex and they're finely tuned. And when something goes wrong, we, we see, we can see what, what that is. You know, you, you can see when, when we have cognitive disabilities, physical disabilities that occur as a result of problems with, with the genetics and the genome. And back in, in when the book was written and the movie was, was filmed, you know, genomes were just starting to be understood. The human genome was still was 10, 15 years away, um, 10 years. So I still came that out. project you completed? 2000, 2000, I think, is the human genome. Okay. Is where, and, and so it's never really complete. People are they're right. still finding out new things about the human genome in terms of its, its the sequence of, of bases, you know, and listen to Jurassic Park, you know, that DNA is four bases, A, G, C, and T, and it's that code, mm-hmm. right? And so um, it was still in, into the future. So we didn't really understand genome organization. We knew that that genes themselves, that part of the DNA that encodes proteins that make our, our bodies do what they do and structure and function, um, is a very small portion of the DNA, Relative. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of intervening sequence. There's a lot of intervening DNA between genes, and and so the idea was it was junk DNA. It's not really doing anything. It's not a gene. Well, no, that's not true. We we okay. know now that it's really you know what's there is important. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense because the human body, well, all bodies, all living things, they don't like to have wasteful things. There's not really a whole lot in living things that's of no use. Yeah, and so we know that this, this all the DNA is contributing in some way, like to the development, the timing, the developmental timing of the organism. You know, when genes get uh, expressed, or when they're turned on, when they're turned off, where do they express? Because we all, every cell in your body has the same DNA in it, mm-hmm. right? But but each cell has a different function, and that function is dependent upon which genes are being expressed, and at what time. Right. And and so even though you have the same genes in a brain cell that you do in a liver cell, um, the same set of genes, not all of those genes, there's different different subsets of genes that are being expressed at different times in those cell types and tissue types. And that's finely tuned. You you disrupt that that mechanism and you're not gonna get a viable organism. No, I I've heard this, and I don't know the exact percentages, so I'm not going to try and quote them, but the human DNA is only a certain percentage different from other great apes, and that's only a certain percentage different from other mammals, and that's only a certain percentage different from plants. But those percentages are very marginal. So some people get very excited when they're like, wow, we're so similar to our mammalian or ape relatives, but then we think, well, we're also really, really closely related to trees. So those yeah. marginal differences- well, Not as closely related to a tree as we are to a chimp. <laughs> right, right, right. But those percentages are pretty small, is my understanding. And those small margins make up for the massive differences between species and genomes and then the individuals. Do, do you know what some of those percentages differences are? Yeah. I mean, so I- Chimpanzees and humans are about ninety-seven percent similar in terms of their DNA. 
-hmm. but the differences are significant. Mm -hmm. So the differences lie, in fact, in the intervening sequences, right? Not in the genes themselves. Um, the genes, the human and chimp genes are very similar to each other. Uh, and, and in many cases, they're actually identical. Mm -hmm. um, but where you find differences are in the intervening sequences that don't encode proteins, but contribute to developmental timing, right? Mm -hmm. Where there are differences in, in genes, protein coding genes, they're, they're the, the biggest uh, amount, the largest amount of differences in, in genes that are um, related to neurological function. Interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, to be expected, right? So, right. Physiologically, so, anatomically, we're very close to chimps, but in terms of brain capacity, there's a there's a very large difference. And that's probably where I've heard that neurologically we're similar to lobsters. I think, as I heard that, um, is that true? I don't know about that. Okay. Um, but that's a lot of lobsters. No, I mean, some animals are, you know, we're finding out are, are actually very intelligent. So birds, and this is brought out in Jurassic Park, in fact, is how intelligent birds are. And they make, you know, Crichton makes a point of, of having these animals be relatively intelligent, particularly his velociraptors, right? right. They're really intelligent animals. He makes the, the Tyrannosaurus rex rather stupid and clumsy, but the velociraptor raptors are are intelligent they can open doors you know they they can hunt in packs and they they strategize and how they're hunting so yeah they have more language um i think was kind of the key identifier and yeah uh, they communicate right. although i and don't remember exactly how he was having them communicate but i think it was chirps and whistles and yeah clicks and right. whatnot um, but that, that is interesting. And that really kind of makes me think though, between the gaps between us and other animals and dinosaurs is, um, what is kind of the difference then? So you said 97% similar to chimpanzees, but what's our DNA similarity with a plant? Well, I don't know what it is in terms of a percentage. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some genes that you know, have critical functions in, in terms of a cell and how a cell operates. And so these genes can be very similar between humans and plants. And uh, they're not going to be identical. Um, you know, so there's, you know, the DNA inside of a cell is not just sitting there all by itself. It, it's complexed with proteins and RNA, you know, there's a relative of DNA and it, it's complexed into chromosomes, right? And so there are there are proteins that DNA is wound around. They're called histones, and those are very similar across all living organisms. These proteins that are coded by genes. Mm -hmm. So there are some genes which are highly conserved across all organisms. There are other genes um, that have some similarity, and then there are some that are novel, are new, or different. You know, that are completely novel to plants or animals or fungi or whatever. So, you know, in terms of the organization as well, um, genes are organized differently. So, yeah, there's some genetic similarity between animals and plants. But yeah, and that's you know, really I couldn't put a percentage on it. Maybe somebody knows, but I, I don't know what the percentage is. 
Yeah, maybe I'll look it up and drop it into the comments. Uh, but that that is interesting because we 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 I think the way we think about DNA as just the general public is not quite as in depth as genetics geneticists think about mm-hmm. it, obviously. And it's really interesting to think that it's like, yeah, there's going to be pillars that are consistent throughout all life forms that we share with other life forms. But those small differences are something that make humans so incredibly unique and different. And that's why, you know, you kind of expose the plot hole that you can't just sequence, you can't just finish a dinosaur sequence with a frog DNA and call it good because there's way too many differences and variables that you have to account for. Yeah. And he, you know, the, the science of Jurassic Park from the 1990s, 1980s and 1990s was, was based on recombinant DNA. So this was um, techniques that were very popular at the time. They're still used today, but just not as much. And what they did is they cut the DNA. They used enzymes, protein enzymes to cut the DNA into fragments and then you could splice them together. And there was another set of enzymes that were used to splice. It was, we called it cut and paste. So we mm-hmm. cut and paste. We just cut DNA and paste it together. And this, is, this has been done um, now for several decades. And there was a lot of controversy regarding recombinant DNA and what kinds of things people were going to create with it. Uh, I did recombinant DNA back in the, in the day. We were using mostly bacteria. Uh, to, to do it, we would cut and paste molecules, DNA molecules that we then would put into bacteria and they would harbor these DNA molecules and could replicate them. And, um, Those to are do that with, a, with an animal genome, though, is incredibly complex. And it's kind of the funny thing in the, in the book, uh, movie. I don't remember if they said it in the movie, but in the book, um, talks about, you know, John Hammond is the financier, the head of the whole thing, the creative mind behind it. And Henry Wu is the scientist who's a bit naive and green. He's right out of graduate school. So he doesn't have any good concept of ethics or anything like that. He's just going to do what he's paid to do. Um, but he's, he's actually induced to work for John Hammond with uh, by an offer of $10 million a year for five years. And that, I just, <laughs> that's a wow. pretty attractive salary. No, it's not very attractive at all. You can't do that. I mean, the human genome, to sequence the human genome, one, one animal genome, for which we already knew quite a bit, uh, was $3 billion. Oh, okay, okay. That was the price tag to, to get it sequenced, $3 billion. Wow. And so they're talking about you know sequencing 15 animal genomes to the point where you could actually engineer those genomes and organize them in a way that created a, an actual living viable organism 15 genomes you know you're talking about far more than 50 million dollars and a lot longer than 5 years so you compress he compressed the timeline just yeah. with one guy running one lab you know, the human genome was $3 billion with multiple labs across the world uh, collaborating and in multiple efforts as well. I mean, it was, there were other people besides the public project. The human genome project was publicly funded. Um, so Celera, for instance, uh, Jake Craig Venter, um, you know, he, he led an effort as well, a private effort to sequence the genome. And, you know, the, the reason why the private sector was interested is because they wanted to patent the genes. 
Mm. Again, you, you see, this is where you get into the whole philosophy behind it, which which is really what's behind Jurassic Park. Is he was trying to patent his dinosaur? No, it wasn't. It was it was making money off of you know, and and even so is you know when you read the read the book, it becomes clear that Ian Malcolm is the voice of Michael Crichton. That that's his voice, right? He mm. he chooses Ian Malcolm. He puts all these other characters around. Alan Grant, the paleo bot, bot bio, the paleo um, paleontologist, is of course the hero, right? In in the movie, even he leads the children out of the park, and uh, the book even makes him more of a and more of the voice of rationality and science. Whereas you know Hammond and, and Henry Wu, the, the molecular biologist that does the work, these are the villains, yeah, right? We're just trying to make money and. And, you know, Malcolm says, oh, you know, some people call it discovery. I call it the rape of the natural world. You know, <laughs> these are pretty strong statements. And, and a lot of things are true. You know, he, he talks about uh, these guys doing something because, you know, they, they said, oh, I can do it. You know, instead of asking, should I do it? Should I do it? Yeah. Right. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when they're sitting around having dinner and he says, the only one on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. And the lawyer yeah. was like, thank you. And yeah. he just was like, oh, man, we're going to make a fortune yeah. on this place. And it all became about the money. And it was, you know, and I think we see that in science a lot. And that's that's an interesting theme that's continuing to come up on this podcast is talking to a lot of scientists and subject matter experts is there seems to be a disconnect between the scientists who understand the ethics and the considerations of their research and the implications of it versus the people who want to try and make a profit off of it. And that's the interesting thing is there's a disconnect. Reality check. The science of fiction. Well, actually, see, you see that, but, but Crichton in the book, he makes the point of putting those two together. He talks about scientists being uh, creators and discoverers for for many years, and, and and his point is that that has changed now, and scientists have become entrepreneurs, mm. right? So he doesn't make Henry Wu in in the book or the movie an entrepreneur. Uh, he's a tool. Hammond is the entrepreneur, but his point is that there's been a corruption of science by by infusing into it this entrepreneurial spirit, right? The idea of making money, doing science to make money. And that, you know, he's not wrong. It's certainly true. And, you know, now you have scientists, you have even university laboratories, universities themselves, who are very much focused on patenting discoveries, on licensing, on, on getting money, from from your know, research products, and so that's um, that's that's you know that's a big part of his book. And in the book itself, the lawyer Gennaro is not his friend. The movie they make it oh you know we're going to make we're going to make you know millions of dollars. And he starts that doesn't happen in the book. Gennaro wants to blow the island up. Okay. See, and I actually yeah, have not read the book. Um, oh yeah, Gennaro, He's not a very courageous person, but he wants he wants to destroy the island because the whole the idea here, and it, it doesn't come out until the second movie, Lost World, is that the the book book actually opens up with 
um, little vignettes which suggest that the dinosaurs are off the island and they're on the mainland. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's a whole plot device too because they actually see on the camera a boat leaving the island and they see on the camera that there are velociraptors or they actually see it through the binoculars that there are velociraptors on the boat. And so it's actually Alan Grant and the kids are trying to race back, getting through the park to in order to stop the boat and to get it turned around so that the velociraptors wouldn't get off the boat and onto the mainland. Got it. So Gennaro knew it. He knew that the, the dinosaurs were off. He believed that they were off the island. And he saw it as a liability. He saw it from a legal perspective and he wanted okay. to destroy the island. That is and really it's actually the it's it's not it's not the blood sucking lawyer that gets eaten by the tyrannosaur, it's the it's the public relations guy. <laughs> okay, it's so I don't know. Crichton's probably got some underlying issues, you know, with certain certain people and uh, you know kinds of people. And it is funny because archetypally, his characters kind of show up repeatedly in his book. Yeah. Um, and so it is interesting that you kind of, you brought up that, that he wrote himself in as Ian, the chaos theory. Well, that's, I think he's, that's his voice. Yeah. What his message is being delivered through Ian Malcolm about, mm -hmm. about science and, and the danger of, of just doing things in order to make a profit. Right. That's, that's kind of where, I mean, it's right in the introduction to the book. It's clear and right. it's, it's very clever because he starts his, his introduction by, talking about real science being done, you know, and he talks about Genentech, which is a pioneering biotech firm. And then he moves in and he just transitions over to InGen, which is his fictional company. So that, that kind of lead us today with some of the technologies that are similar in the book that are being kind of developed. Cloning, for example, is something that is starting to happen on certain scales, Dolly the sheep. And those are for the most part, for-profit technologies. Well, cloning isn't just beginning. It's been going on for a long time. Right. And it right. is possible so to clone. That. Yeah, it's possible to clone certain organisms, including mammals, sheep, cattle, cats, dogs. People are doing all sorts of stuff. They clone. You know, there's a there's a company at Texas A&M that, that will clone your, your pet for you. Really? Uh, okay, so that's a that's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I think that one was the sixth day, where they have the re pets, and there's this yeah, corporation. I, I didn't see that movie. So yeah, there's a corporation that can clone your pet. So yeah. if your dog dies, you can get the exact same dog again tomorrow. And it, wow, it sounds like that's happening. Yeah, and it, it it doesn't turn out to be as as neat and perfect as you might imagine. So, so you don't quite I tell the story in my classes. They they cloned a cat a calico cat and um, somebody wanted this calico cat cloned. Well, it didn't turn out to be calico in the end. And there's a reason for it. There's a genetic reason behind it. Um, and, and the cat turned out to be black and white or gray and white rather than a, a calico orange and gray and white. So, but that's really interesting. So we're, so we can clone. We can, but, but not we... in the way that Crichton described it. And, okay. and so, you know, when he takes those guys on the tour, they go to each dental little section. You know, they start with extraction, and then they go to genetic analysis, and then suddenly they go to the nursery. And Crichton has left the big gap right there. 
because he goes from extracting DNA, sequencing the DNA in the genome, and then he goes right to just having the embryos and the eggs in, in the nursery. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, how did you get the DNA into the egg? How did you make the embryo? Because you cannot do that. And in the way that he described it, through recombinant DNA, you can't do it. Uh, because DNA is not, you can't just take a DNA molecule and make an organism out of it. Um, because it's, it's packaged, it's packaged in these chromosomes. And, and the chromosomes have structure and they have purpose and function. They're, they're complex with proteins. And, and so the, the organization of the DNA and the nucleus is very, very critical. And you can't just do that de novo. You can't just you know throw it in and, and let it, it won't self-assemble. And so in order to clone an organism, you actually have to take a part of the cell, the nucleus. The nucleus is where the DNA resides. You have to take that where it has DNA that is already complexed with proteins and in chromosome structure. So when they cloned Dolly the sheep, for instance, they they went into the adult sheep, Dolly, and they removed a cell, the nucleus from a cell in her body. And then they got an egg from a female sheep, and an egg only, you know, an egg is, is a gamete, is what we call it, and the nucleus only has one set of chromosomes, okay? And when it's united with the sperm, and the sperm also contains one set of chromosomes, you restore the two sets of chromosomes that all mammalian organisms have, right? Like us humans, we have, you know, there are 23 human chromosomes, but we get one set from mom and one set from dad. And so all of our cells have 46, mm -hmm. two of each, uh, one from each parent. So it's the same thing with sheep. Um, so an egg has only got one set. And so they, they go in with a little fine needle and they pull that nucleus out. Okay. And so now you have an egg that doesn't have a nucleus. And they take the nucleus from the non, you know, from the adult cell of Dolly and they put it into that what we call it a nucleated egg. So it had it's missing its nucleus. And then they do a little stimulation and it thinks now it's a zygote, which is a fertilized egg, and it begins to divide in vitro in a petri dish. Once it reaches a certain stage, then they can transfer that into a surrogate mother. They actually implant it into the uterus of a female and let it develop and grow. So you have to have an intact cell. You cannot start just with DNA. And so, you know, a few years ago, there were some scientists who wanted to clone the woolly mammoth. Right, well, they went, reading about yeah, that. they went to Siberia because there was a find there of a mammoth encased in ice. It was the baby, they wasn't thought, it? What's that? It was a little baby, wasn't it? And it still had food remnants in its body, something like it that. Have, I don't remember what it's, if it was a baby or doll, what, but they thought we could find an intact, if they could find an intact cell, they could get its nucleus out and put it into an elephant egg and then implant it into an elephant and, and maybe give birth to a woolly mammoth. That's very Jurassic Park-like, right? You right, know, but right. woolly mammoths aren't necessarily uh, terrifying animals. Um, but, um, you know, it didn't work because they, they couldn't find a cell that had a, an intact nucleus. It had the so woolly mammoth, I mean, DNA, the genome has been sequenced, but... You know, we don't, we can't, we can't actually make a woolly mammoth just with the DNA. Now, 
now see now we but but there have been advancements and so if i were to write this book or if Crichton were to write this book now instead of using recombinant dna of you know getting a whole genome sequence and then pasting pieces together i'd do gene editing see so we've advanced now and there are now you have the ability to actually go into a living cell and change the dna sequence without extracting the dna that's called gene editing, and that's a whole new uh, development in molecular biology and biotechnology that is just... And that's what they're using CRISPR for, right? CRISPR, that's exactly right. CRISPR right. is gene editing. So CRISPR was not... It was or it was not around during the um, development of the movie and book Jurassic Park? It wasn't. No, it's okay. 2000, 2012 is when Jennifer Doudna... And Emmanuel uh, Chipantier has published their paper um, in Science, you know, describing the, the CRISPR system um, from a molecular biochemical point of view. And it's so uh, much they, more... they got the Nobel Prize for it because it's just now being used, and and it's gonna, you know, it's gonna rock our world. Well, <laughs> it so already is. More, it's so much more refined than the cut and paste editing yeah. system that you described earlier. And that was, that's kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the system, the cut and paste is the system that they used to do some of the earlier GMOs to help food be more resistant to viruses or bacteria and certain things like that. Yes. Right, right. And, right. And, and so that, to make a GMO, you're making a transgenic plant. You're introducing a new piece of DNA, a foreign DNA into mm -hmm. the plant genome. And that's and, what they did. It was recombinant. And so you, you take a piece of DNA that encodes a protein that you want to put into the plant. You put it into a little circular piece of DNA. We call it a plasmid. You put that into a bacteria. And there's a bacterium. It's called agrobacterium that infects plant cells and will actually transfer its DNA into the plant, into its nucleus, and get integrated into its genome. Right. It's, it's a really... Right, whereas CRISPR process. uses viruses to embed the DNA. Is that right? Uh, CRISPR, can, you could use a virus, I suppose, to deliver it uh, in animals. That, that's always the problem with animals is how do you get, you know, engineered DNA into an animal cell? And they do use viruses to deliver DNA to animal cells. We we generally use, you know, for, for plant cells, we use the agrobacterium, although I think viruses have been used as well. Um, and so that's that's how you make a transgenic plant. Well, that, that all sounds really scary to people. I think a lot of people out there are terrified of GMOs. They're terrified of genetic modification. Um, it, but there's there's it's being widely done. And I know that the scientific community, you have your conspiracy theorists, your scientific community. There's there's a kind of a disconnect, and a lot of people are scared of the technology they don't understand. And they draw conclusions based on observational things they see. Oh, I eat this genetically modified food and it upsets my stomach, whereas the unmodified food may not have done that. Can you talk a little bit about um, what's actually going on with these technologies and if we should or should not be wary of them? Well, okay. So, um, you know, so the caveat is I'm not, I'm not, personally, I'm not concerned about it. I understand the process and genetic modification of food, foods and, and food crops have been going on for generations, for, for decades. 
we've been modified for hundreds of years. We've been modifying organisms genetically, we, but we've we've been doing it for so long. People are accustomed to it, and it doesn't seem to bother anybody. I mean, tomatoes, potatoes, corn are incredibly they're domesticated. They're they're we've manipulated them to suit our purposes so that we can grow them in large monocultures and produce many tons of food. The wheat, corn, rice, it's all been modified. All of it. Every, almost everything you see in the grocery store is genetically modified, even if it says GMO free, because you can't really, I mean, it's like bananas. Every single banana is a clone of the one banana there. I think there used to be, hundreds of species of banana. I don't know if it's hundreds, but there's there multiple species. But now the banana that we eat is based off of just the one banana clone. Yeah, it's it's the uh, uh, it, and, and, you know, and it's actually causing a problem because there's a fungus that destroys the banana. And so interesting. So that's why yeah. biodiversity is so important. Yeah, it is. So the GMO, though, has a very specific definition. And, and so when we say that an organism is genetically modified organism, we mean that foreign DNA has been put into it, not through natural conventional breeding processes, but it's been introduced through these molecular biotechnological techniques. So I can't now, make the joke anymore that my dog is genetically a genetically modified wolf. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you could, but, but it's, it's not the same. And and we can do it with animals as well. So fish have been genetically modified. So there's a company uh, that makes genetically modified salmon. They've introduced a growth hormone uh, into the salmon so that it grows much, much faster on the same amount of food, you know, in the same amount in time, it, it just becomes very large so that it can be harvested more, you know, quicker. Are we um, doing that with humans too? No. There's, yeah, because you know, there's 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 always those ethical concerns, but there are conversations about these things. Well, yeah, you know, super athletes and and people who are resistant to disease. Right. So we talked about gene editing, and a few years ago, uh, you had um, uh, this uh, gentleman in in China, um, uh, I'm to remember, he he John King John King Hey John King I can't remember how to pronounce his name but he he did CRISPR on human embryos right so he engineered these embryos human embryos to be resistant to the AIDS virus right and he actually did gene editing so he didn't have to extract DNA from the cells he just went in and modified them and then he actually put them you know implanted those into the mother and she gave birth to twin daughters. Oh wow! Uh, they, they, they live. They exist. We he says they did, but he, he no, he's not telling who it was or where they live. But he he went to jail. <laughs> yeah, that he, he spent several crazy. years in jail in China. The Chinese, you know, because of his violation of Chinese law, and and it it was very upsetting. I mean, the scientific community went, you know. They were not happy about it. So these girls may or may not exist. They may or may not exist. Wow, that's he's saying that they do and they lived, but it's a modification to a cellular receptor that prevents the cells from uh, allowing them to be infected by by oh, the um, HIV. Yeah. Wow. So. So. Yeah, people are concerned, and people have always been concerned. You know, I, I one of the things I wanted to say was. 
Jurassic Park is not a new story. It's a very, very old story. It's been around for a long time. Now, Crichton repackaged it and made it very exciting and, and very adventurous for a modern audience, but it's not a new story. Um, it, this, is, this is the story. It's the same story of Frankenstein. It, it is Frankenstein. It's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, packages dies a different monster. You know, Frankenstein was was the doctor. He was the one that created the monster. In the book, it's the monster, right? Is Frankenstein is not the name of the monster, but which is um, kind of the paradox because Frankenstein was the monster. If you truly understand, well, yeah, he, he was, was the, the monster one. creating the monster. <laughs> yeah, and it was very, it was a very up to date kind of idea that you know people believed that there was some sort of way that you could animate dead flesh, you know, and so he, he gave it an electrical purge shock, you know, and yeah. put all these pieces together and it's what he did, you know, it was just like piecing together a genome. He pieced mm -hmm. together body parts and then he, he he stimulated it in such a way that it was animated and became a living being. It's the same story and it, and it was it was a horror story, you know, this monster that goes out and does horrible things and and he does create he does give it some humanity and it's you know the book is you know very philosophical in nature but it's the same same idea and it even goes back in further into greek myth because mary shelley the subtitle of her book frankenstein is a modern prometheus so you go back to yeah. prometheus right and and prometheus uh, stole fire from the the gods he was a titan he stole fire from the olympic gods and he gave it to humans and, and zeus was furious and had him captured and tied up on the mountain and an eagle came every day and ate his liver <laughs> and uh and, and and then it regrew overnight and he got his liver eaten again the next day so it's the i mean it was because warning. it was what's that it's the it's the warning that we're not yeah. supposed to play god we shouldn't play god but yet we still he's so fascinated we're still fascinated by it yeah. it's advancement of knowledge i mean if you go to a grocery store and you buy any food in the grocery store it's been genetically modified in one form or another not necessarily transgenic although a lot of it has in that you know the by by introducing foreign dna through uh, artificial means but but you know tomatoes for instance are heavily heavily bred and and domesticated and have been uh, you know, through genetic breeding, plant breeding, to because if we didn't, it wouldn't last. You know, right. we have so many diseases, and so they bred into it uh, resistance to diseases, viruses, bacteria, fungi. It just and one of the you know, interesting things is you think about okay, we're doing this for progress. We're trying to solve real problems. World hunger is a real problem. They're able to genetically modify grains to be a complete protein to feed starving nations. Those are very good, good breakthroughs. But just, just like with Jurassic Park, there can be unintended genetic consequences. They did not plan on the dinosaurs evolving and spontaneously changing their sex and breeding. So are there anything, is there anything going on in the scientific genetic community right now where we're witnessing some of those unintended evolutions or consequences from some of the genetic modification that may have started from something good and now we're seeing it changing to something that we're not quite realizing how that would have come about? Well, there are. There's always concerns. So, 
so for instance, you know, one of the ninety-seven percent of the the corn that is grown in the United States is genetically modified to be resistant to insects. So they've taken a gene from a bacteria called Bacillus thuringiensis, and it's a gene that encodes a toxin. It's a, it's toxic to insects, but not to humans. They used to spray this bacteria, and they probably still do on certain crops. They used to spray the bacteria right onto the crops because when insects would eat it, eat plant material that had this bacterium on it, it would kill them. But now they've taken that protein, they know where the, the gene is, and they've inserted it right into the corn plant so that an insect feeds on it and it, it kills the insect. So you've essentially put an insecticide into the plant. Well, as Ian Malcolm says, life finds a way, right? And so you do that, and what's going to happen is that the population of insects that you're targeting are going to evolve. They're going to evolve resistance because there are always going to be insects in the population. Just because of genetic variation, there will be insects in that population that will have resistance to the to the toxin. Whether the insect develops a spontaneous mutation that allows it to cope, or if that mutation was always there in the population. It's going to always be there, right. But the, one, the ones who were not resistant die off, and the resistant ones now thrive. Exactly. And so then that, that, pop, that the population now become... So they have to, you know, to accommodate that when these farmers grow BT corn, they have to grow a, um, what they call a refuge plot. They have to grow a portion of their land has to be planted with non-BT corn so that the insects will go there. Wow. And, 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 and it maintains a, a high enough um, uh, frequency of the, you know, the non-mutated gene that allows those insects to still be Wow. I didn't know that. It, it's so interesting. It sounds like it's almost like a genetics arms race. We are trying yeah, to keep up with the mutations and the changes, but we can't. We're always going to be just either one step behind or step in step with how nature is changing to adapt to humanity's changes. Now, here's, here's the thing, though, is that we are trying to, you know, it's, it's a noble cause to want to feed the world. Right to, to to decrease food insecurity. We want people to not be hungry. So we say, well, we need to come up with ways to produce more food, more calories for people to consume better calories. You know, they have more nutrition. And so it's a great concept, but it it might cause us to be distracted from where the real problem lies. Because right now we produce more than enough food to feed our population. In fact, we could probably feed many more times our population than we currently have on the planet. Or our problem world is not production. Our, pro our, our problem is not production, it's distribution. Mm -hmm. We do not have equitable distribution of food. And, and uh, we, we have to figure that out. And, and maybe we should be focusing some of our efforts on that. How do we, you know, and, and we have war, um, localized famine and drought, um, social instability, you know, oppressive governments, whatever it might be, um, we don't get the food to people who need it, not because we can't produce the food, but because of these other kinds of barriers. So we do have that danger in, in that race and drive to produce more food. Maybe we should be thinking more about how do we get the food to the people who really need it. And, and that's, I, I think that's a, as yeah. important. 
And that really changes the conversation from can and should we do some of these genetic modifications to, well, yeah, we can, but we don't even need to. If we're properly managing the funds, if we're talking about it like money, we want to manage the funds properly that we already have and we're mismanaging it. We're spending our world supply of food poorly. And I know, unfortunately, America is a big waster of food. We tend to buy stuff in the groceries that go bad in our fridge and then we throw it away. And, but then it's, we circle back to the genetic modification. Well, what if we can give it a longer shelf life, then we're not going to throw it away. So the, the, the questions, it seems like it keeps circling back to the answer of we need to continue to modify the food to last longer. When in reality, we just need to manage it better ourselves. And so you're absolutely right that being able to change these foods doesn't fix the underlying problem that we're poor stewards of the food that we already have. Well, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't deter us from scientific advancement, in my opinion. There are good things. Um, so, you know, for instance, cassava, which is a very important plant in in the diets of a lot of people. Um, you know, it, cassava would probably be gone if it wasn't for genetic modification, right? So it's been modified to be resistant to a virus that would otherwise destroy the crop. So, you know, we want to make sure as well in the process that we keep the diet diverse. We, we maintain native foods as well. Um, not everybody should be eating wheat or rice and corn. You know, there are other kinds of food that we should be um, concentrating on we can we can address food security by promoting foods that are you know part of the local culture, yeah. Uh, that are nutritious, you know. For for example, um, to if, kind of promote BYU, which has long been involved in um, research on quinoa. So quinoa is a native food to the in the Andean region of South America, which is in, very important to their culture and their diet, um, and. We've been working. For, we have a team here at BYU that's been working for many years on, on trying to understand the plant and be able to improve its cultivation practices so that more people can eat it. It's very nutritious food, mm-hmm. and so, and it, it, you know, it's now being accepted worldwide as well. It's being planted around the world, including the United States. Yeah, and so, that truly is incredible what humanity is capable of. I'm always left in awe. Um, So far, every episode that I've recorded for this podcast, all the experts that I'm talking to, there's always a beautiful silver lining and halo around a lot of these technologies that we're developing. And these are things that could be scary, but for the most part, there's so many fantastic examples of how humans are, are using these things to really improve the world around us. And we tend to focus on the scary parts of them. Like, you know, people are scared of GMOs. They don't want to eat them for this reason or that. But for the most part, it is solving a lot of, like you said, food insecurity and hunger problems. Like with with the example with BYU, what they're doing with the quinoa, that's just incredible. And for that, I just, I'm really proud of humanity and it makes me happy to see it. Yeah. Now we still need to be cautious, but yeah, you know, there's there's lots of science can go wrong sometimes, and Crichton tells a great story, and um, and focuses our attention on making sure that we're doing the right thing. You know, 
in genetics, I, t I always use the example of eugenics. So eugenics was an example of science gone wrong. The idea that you could change human evolution by controlling breeding, who, yeah. who, who was having kids with who. And, um, and, and that's, that's going to be a really interesting episode in this this podcast, I did um, an episode on the genetic breeding of the Bene Gesserit order in the sci-fi world Dune. I did that with yeah. another geneticist, and that is a uh, episode that goes really heavy into eugenics. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a, that a good, good. I'll I'll want to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. And it was funny. The other geneticist was telling me they're like, "Oh man, why did I get the eugenics topic? I wanted the Jurassic Park topic." And so it's funny that you're both wanting each other's topics. Yeah. Um, but no, this is, this has been such a fun conversation. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to speak to in the genetic concepts of Jurassic Park that we didn't quite get to yet? Um, I don't know in terms of concepts there, there were, um, you know, we, there, there's, there's other kinds of, of gaps in the, in his, his science, you know, that in the movie, remember the, botanist um dr statler when she's in the jeep and she's not paying attention and dr grant sees the dinosaurs and he has to turn her head she's staring at a leaf of a plant and she says oh this this um uh species of veriformin has been extinct you know shouldn't be here it's been extinct it was in the cretaceous period or whatever and of course there's no explanation whatsoever where they got planted. Yeah, did they get that from the mosquito there. too? <laughs> yeah, they couldn't have done that. But so there's no explanation there. And in the book, it is actually a, a Cretaceous dragonfly with a six foot wingspan. Oh wow! Uh, that that they play with when they're in the park, and and uh, you know you're like, well, where did they get that? I mean, that'd be a nice that'd be a piece of amber <laughs> to get that insect. But absolutely. So you know, there's little. Little things like that that we talked about the sex switching. Um, I think if I were to write the book, or maybe Crichton would write the book again, he would go with with the spontaneous sex switching from amphibians, but maybe use parthenogenesis, which is a different concept. Because reptiles do uh, a thing called parthenogenesis, so females can actually um, produce a clutch of eggs without a benefit of fertilization. And I think they did that in the newest movie. It was a uh, Komodo dragon. Oh, did they? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Komodo so dragon they're, they're, I'm not up to date. Yeah, it's the Komodo dragon that does part of the genesis. Yeah, I, I don't recommend the new ones. They were they lacked a lot of the the wonder and the sense of possibility that the original Jurassic Park um, that really just like it just captured a generation, and yeah. there was just the sense of possibility of wow, could we do this? And the that? newer Jurassic Parks are just a little bit more CGI dinosaur carnage, yeah. which uh, I think kind of brings us to our reality check moment. All right. Okay. So, Dr. Coleman, on a scale of one to five, with one being pure fiction, five being science fact, how possible would it be for us to bring back the dinosaurs? Well, I, I'm going to have to say it's, what is it? Oh, oh. I can't we remember. have pure fiction, pure fiction, speculative science, speculative science, fringe reality, emerging fact, and science fact. I would say probably I'll I'll hedge a little and say speculative science, and primarily because I think that the biggest hole is is the lack of DNA. It just 
I, you know, I don't want to, as a scientist, I can't say it doesn't exist because we haven't looked in every possible place. And maybe somewhere, someday, somebody will find it. Right now, it seems um, enormously improbable that anyone will ever find dinosaur DNA that they could use to potentially design an animal like that. So the science, theoretically, the technology, if you had the DNA, you know, the way we're moving with gene editing and what other kinds of discoveries in the future there are, that's, that's a, you know, I, I would say that's probably stretching more towards a possibility. But the fact is, without the DNA, without the blueprint, how do you, how do you design the animal? And, yeah. you know, maybe if someday way in the future will become so sophisticated that you can, you know, reverse engineer some way or another, but that's going from a, just a fossil record that seems really highly. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So it's, you know, theoretically maybe, but we just don't quite have the technologies or knowledge to quite make it happen. Yeah, and and the lack of of DNA, it's like trying, yeah. you know, saying we we'll, we we'll recreate a a building, but we don't have any blueprints for it. We don't even have we don't have a picture. We don't have a blueprint. All we have is like maybe an impression, you know, like a fossil. And and how do you build all the organisms, all, all the organs and tissues, and what color is it? I you know, we just don't have DNA. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and we are going to be signing off here in just a minute. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. And this has been a total blast. Yeah. Reality check. Designs. Of fiction. 